This week on the show, we covered the previous third quarter's 2022 status report. We also show how leveraging mini-IO and OpenZFS can avoid vendor lock-in. Previously on the Firecracker platform, reported by Percival, how much faster is making a TAR archive for non-GZIP? Postgres packages on PSD, upgrading an NDFDZ pool to bigger capacity. Don't use Reddit for Linux and PSD web questions, why that is, and more. This week's episode... BSD Now, episode 481, Fiery Crackers, recorded on the 2nd of November, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in various ways, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow, and thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Euschling. And I am Tom Jones. Yeah, we are back here. I hope you had a nice week so far, and we could uh, give you a couple more interesting tidbits here and there to make it even more interesting. For example, the FreeBSD quarterly status report has been released. So this is the third quarter of 2022. This is our headlines. Yep. So this is uh, a collection of work from a ton of people, um, and it's been pulled together by Lorenzo Salvador on behalf of the status report team. And Lorenzo Wright wrote... I noticed that in the past, we had quarters with many more reports, often more than 30, sometimes even more than 40. Thus, I would like to encourage all of you to submit reports. Reports are useful to share your work, to find help, to have more eyes reviewing your changes, to have more people testing your software, to reach a wider audience whenever you need to tell something to all of the FreeBSD community, and in many other cases, please do not be shy and do not worry if you're not a native English speaker or you're not proficient in ASCII doc. The quarterly team will be glad to help you with whatever you need. And on the other hand, if you really do not have anything to report, then maybe you'd like to join one of the interesting projects described below, or you might be inspired from one of them to do something new and have something to report in the future. Um, it was a really nice introduction from Lorenzo. Oh yeah, well said. Uh, and as always, the, uh, the, the reports start with a report from the core team. And the core team is the government body of uh, the FreeBSD project. Um, a big item is the core team secretary role has been handed over um, and it has been handed over from uh, Mohammed Boff at, for serving as, uh, who's the previous core team secretary for the last two years and it's been handed to Sergio Carlavila uh, Carlavila uh, and it's good um, a, a core team secretary is uh, in some ways the most powerful person in the project so it's always good to have um, a handover um, in in news from uh, the core team, they also have uh, started work on devising a process to handle GDPR deletion requests. There's a new privacy policy. Uh, Bruce Evans Memorial Plaque. Um, the core team has unanimously voted to allow a memorial plaque for Bruce Evans, mentioning him as a co-founder of FreeBSD. Um, and at EuroBSDCon, at EuroBSDCon, there was a core team office hour. On the 16th of September, the core team presented at EuroBSDCon 2022 Developer Summit. The core team introduced themselves and talked a bit about their plans for this term. There were discussions, Q&A, and suggestions from the attendees. And, and obviously, one of my favorite parts, um, the core team get to announce um, uh, that they have approved reactivating the source commit bit for Conrad 
Widziad Widziak Def at I love email. Um, right now, Conrad is working at Cambridge University, where he's responsible for developing Cherry BSD. That's cool. Always good to hear from the core team. Um, quarterly reports would be amiss without an update from the FreeBSD Foundation, and they give an update of the finances and fundraising so far, and they talk about the juicy technical hard stuff with OS improvements. And they write during the third quarter of 2022, 300 source, 36 ports, and 13 doctrine commits were made that identified the FreeBSD Foundation as a sponsor. Some of that work has dedicated report entries. Uh, and just general categories, or FreeBSD is a tier one cloud emit platform. Uh, Intel Wireless towards 802.11ac. Uh, LLDB multi-process debugging support, OpenStack and FreeBSD. Snapshots on file systems using journal soft updates. The other sponsored work is challenging to concisely summarize and it varies from complex features to new bug fixes spanning a source tree. Um, and they have fixes for ARM64, ZFS, um, the VM system, the event timer, and Beehive issues, and RISC-V issues coming from the foundation. Um, they also talk about their advocacy efforts, but you can read them in the giant report. The release engineering team has an update. Um, and in Q3, they have announced the 12.4 release schedule, the 13.2 release schedule, the 14.0 release schedule, and FreeBSD development snapshots. And if you want to hear more, you can uh, read the report. Cluster admin uh, have some updates. Cluster admin run the infrastructure that makes FreeBSD actually appear, um, which then comes from RE. And in this quarter, the uh, cluster admin team worked on uh, additional storage for the CI system. Uh, VUX XML deployed in all the official mirrors, which speeds up package audit functionality. New and additional monitoring systems in place. A uh, few old and faulty machines were decommissioned. Several servers services moved to newer hardware. Uh, regular cluster-wide software updates. Uh, <laughs> regular support for FreeBSD.org user accounts. Regular disk and parts support and replacement for the physical hosts and mirrors. And in progress, they have improvements for um, the Git infrastructure. Work with the PowerPC team to improve package builders, universe, and reference machines. Um, site audit at the primary site to get an inventory of spares and other miscellaneous occupying space in our cabinets. Discussions with Juniper about donation of new switches for the primary site. Plan for a large-scale network upgrade at the primary site. And a cluster refresh, a more extended project. Moving cluster machines, which are running 13 stable or 14 current, um, no, sorry, updating these machines, um, with a few machines that are still behind on 12 stable. Um, and the cluster admin team are looking for additional full mirror site, five servers in Europe. Um, there's a generic mirror layout document which explains what you need and offers of single server mirrors are also always welcome and especially in Europe. Mm -hmm. Good to have. Yep. Then there's an update from continuous integration. Uh, they list the important completed tasks as the expansion of artifact storage space for adding more types of artifacts and longer retention periods. They also presented a testing and CI status update in the EuroBSDCon Developer Summit and linked to the slides, as well as the main PowerPC images and main PowerPC SPE images are added. So you can use those as well. Uh, they list a couple of work in progress tasks about designing and implementing pre-commit CI, building and testing, as well as designing the use of the CI cluster to build release artifacts as release engineering does. Uh, testing, of course, merging pull requests in the FreeBSD CI repo, and a whole host of other things. And they also list items where people could help out in the OpenRP 
few tasks. And if you have any CI-related issues or want to help out, then get in touch with those. And I think that is good for everyone involved. Yep. Then there's a bit about port collection. Yep. Next. We have an update from uh, Rene Ladan on the ports collection. Um, the ports management team is responsible for overseeing the overall direction of the port street, building packages and personnel matters. Um, in the last quarter, there are thir just over 30,500 ports in the tree. Uh, there are currently just under 2,800 open ports PRs, of which 750 are unassigned. The last quarter saw 9,137 commits by 151 committers on the main branch and 589 commits by 61 committers on the 2022 Q3 branch. Compared to two quarters ago, this means a slight increase in the number of ports, but also a slight increase in the number of unassigned ports PRs and a slight decrease in the number of commits made. In the last quarter, they welcomed uh, Felix uh, Palmen Zirus at as a new ports committer, welcomed back uh, Akinori Musha KNUAT, and said goodbye to Olia Hauser, uh, O Hauser. They also welcomed uh, Luca Pizamiglio, Pizamig, as an official member of Port Manager. Ah, that's nice. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a section here for projects, starting with OpenStack on FreeBSD. Yes, uh, so OpenStack is an open source cloud operating system for different types of resources, like virtual and bare metal machines. And users can spawn FreeBSD instances on the open cloud platform. But at the moment, it's not currently possible to run OpenStack control plane on FreeBSD hosts. And the goal of this project is to port the key OpenStack components so that FreeBSD can function as such a host. Uh, and they have been working to run several OpenStack components already on FreeBSD, including Keystone, the identity service, uh, Glance, the image service, Placement, the resource tracking and inventory service, Neutron, the networking service, and Nova, which is the compute service. All right. Some of those items are still in the heavy development uh, because, well, also the upstream software keeps changing as well. For instance, due to the design of Neutron, the HTTP servers are placed inside Linux network namespaces. So it's necessary to find an alternative uh, like VNet on FreeBSD and adopt that. And they provide uh, Outlook uh, to focus on porting Neutron and Nova in order to complete the VM lifecycle operations. And highlights of those include the HTTP integration, FreeBSD bridge and driver uh, or agent integration, as well as Beehive and Libword integration. So that sounds exciting. Skipping massively down the page through tons of really interesting updates that you'll just have to find yourself. We have architectures um, and we have updating platform specific features and bringing support for new hardware. And here we have a project by Colin Percival, um, partially sponsored through his Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash cperceva. Um, and it is FreeBSD Firecracker. Firecracker. Firecracker is an open source micro VM developed by Amazon Web Services. It is designed for the needs of serverless compute environments and has a particular focus on security and minimalism. Starting in June 2022, Colin has been working to port FreeBSD to run in the Firecracker environment with significant assistance from other FreeBSD developers. As of this quarterly report, a set of patches are pending review, which collectively adds the needed support to make FreeBSD functional in a patched version of Firecracker. In Q4, Colin intends to finish committing the relevant patches to FreeBSD, release a kernel and disk images so other FreeBSD users can experiment with Firecracker, an update and merge Firecracker patches, which add PVH boot support used by FreeBSD. This work has already produced spin-off benefits in revealing ways to speed up the FreeBSD boot process due to its low overhead and minimal environment. Friar Firecracker 
is an excellent context to work on this. And this work was supported by Colin's FreeBSD EC2 Patreon. It was a really cool project to see develop, and uh, he wrote a great article about it. Mm -hmm. And we will hear more about this uh, a little further down in your timeline in this episode. Uh, documentation got some updates as well. So there's pretty much something for everyone in this report. We will definitely encourage you to look at it and find something new you would either try out or help testing or just find, hey, this is cool. This is now available or soon available. I can look forward to. Uh, before we go into more fiery cracking things, uh, let's look at avoiding infrastructure vendor lock-in by leveraging MinIO and OpenZFS, which is an article article by Clara Systems. And they start with a simple but nevertheless good introductory uh, excerpt here. Uh, at Clara, we, are, we aren't preachers, but we do have a few favorite sermons. And avoid vendor lock-in is at the top of the list. So vendor lock-in and software-defined storage. Getting locked into a particular vendor can cause your project undue pain, an uninflated build, and a lack of technical choices, as well as making it difficult to move away if your current vendor no longer suits your needs for some reason. Hmm. One of the most common cases of vendor lock-in today comes from the headlong rush to the cloud, and specifically to Amazon Web Services. An increasing number of projects rely on S3 storage buckets to function, and it's easy to think that AWS is the only place you can provide your project with those buckets. Fortunately, that's not the case. The MinIO project, uh, project offers fully S3-compatible Kubernetes-native free and open-source software-defined storage. So there's a section about MinIO itself, uh, its licensing, and you. For the moment, let's leave the technical issue uh, or the discussion aside. MinIO offers you a drop-in replacement for Amazon S3 buckets which in turn means you can feed your S3 design projects viable storage with or without Amazon. Um, but we still need to talk about licensing, particularly since this article is about avoiding vendor lock-in. MinIO is a fully false free and open source software uh, project licensed under the GNU Afero GPL v3. It's also available under commercial licensing, and it's a good idea to know when and why you'd want to pay for the latter. Then they provide an overview of the uh, AGPL, the GNU Affero General Public License. And a little bit further down, we find that MinIO's AGPL in hypothetical action. Uh, what if we don't want the app to be open source at all? The app itself can be copyrighted with no distribution rights granted and still use MinIO for storage. MinIO's AGPL license requires you, the operator of a MinIO instance, to make the uh, MinIO instance's source code available to you and the operator of the web app, which uses it to store uh, photos or any other documents. But what Vinayo's HGPL license does not require you, the operator of the Vinayo instance, to make any code available to random internet users who manage their photos in your application because they're not interacting with Vinayo directly, they're interacting with your application. And there's a bit more about what this involves. Uh, so why not just use Amazon S3 itself Right? If you're already hosting your project on Amazon, using S3 storage may very well be a no-brainer, and that's fine. But even if you're using S3 on Amazon in production, you may want to consider using MinIO in a development environment. This can significantly, significantly increase, uh, what, what kind of word is that? This can significantly reduce your dev infrastructure costs by allowing you to develop outside AWS itself, which could be an less expensive cloud providers such as Linode or DigitalOcean, or it could be your own self-hosted environment. 
like we mentioned earlier, the OpenStack may be available sooner rather than later. And there's a bit more about OpenZFS and MinIO. So definitely check out the rest of the article and then we'll have a better view about how to prevent this lock-in from vendors. Okay, next up, we have uh, an article from daemonology.net, Colin Percival's blog. And as a complete surprise to me, it's announcing the FreeBSD Firecracker platform. <laughs> um, the Firecracker Virtual Machine Monitor was developed at Amazon Web Services as a building block for services like AWS Lambda and AWS, AWS Fargate. While there are many ways of launching and managing VMs, Firecracker distinguishes itself with its focus on minimalism, important both for security, fewer devices means less attack surface, and reducing the startup time, which is very important if you're launching VMs on demand in response to incoming HTTP requests. When Firecracker was first released, the only OS which it supported was Linux. Six months later, Wildeck uh, Kozuaka ported the OSV Unikernel to run on Firecracker. As of a few minutes ago, there are three options. FreeBSD can now run in Firecracker. I started working on this on June 20th, mainly out of curiosity. I'd heard that Firecracker had PVH boot support, which was in fact mistaken. And I knew FreeBSD could boot in PVH mode from Zen. So I wondered how hard it would be to get FreeBSD up and running. Not impossible, it turned out, but a bit more work than I was hoping for. I had a lot of help from other FreeBSD developers, and I'd like to thank, in particular, Brian, Ed, Jessica, John, Kyle, Mark, Roger, and Warner for explaining code to me, helping review my patches, and even entire, writing entirely new code which I needed, among the changes which into get, went into getting Firecracker platform working. The PVH boot mechanism uses an ELF node to tell the loader where the PVH kernel entry point is located. FreeBSD was using an SHT node, while Firecracker, or rather Linux loader, was looking only for PT nodes. Once I tried down the problem, this was fixed quite quickly by Ed and Roger. When PVH booting, the loader provides the requested images, kernel and potentially kernel modules and RAM disk, and also a start intro, start into structure with metadata needed for boot process. In Zen, the kernel and modules are loaded into memory first, and the start info structure is placed immediately after them. Firecracker places the start info page first and loads the rest later. Very early in the boot process, FreeBSD needs a page of temporary space, and it was using the page immediately after the start info page. Mark and Roger reworked the FreeBSD PVH boot code to use the first page after all of the data provided by the PVH loader, not overwriting important data makes a difference. Firecracker doesn't provide ACPI, instead providing information about CPUs and interrupt controllers via the MP table, interface defined in the historical Intel multiprocessor specification. Support for this isn't included in the FreeBSD generic kernel, no matter. I was going to provide a customized Firecracker kernel config anyway, but Firecracker's implementation had two bugs. It placed the MP table in the wrong place, above the advertised top of system memory rather than the last kilobyte, and it set the fields containing the number of table entries to zero rather than the appropriate count. In both cases, Linux accepts the broken behavior, so I added bug for bug compatibility option to FreeBSD's MP table code. Upon entering userland, FreeBSD serial kernel died after printing 16 characters. This bug I recognized since I ran into it with EC2. The UR is losing an interrupt on the transmission FIFO. Fortunately, FreeBSD kernel still had a workaround in place and saying hw.brokenTXFIFO to one fixed the problem. The serial console couldn't read input. In fact, Firecracker wouldn't read input and any key presses stayed in the terminal buffer until after Firecracker exited. This turned out to be due to a bug, or perhaps I should say a missing feature in Firecracker's UR emulation. Firecracker doesn't emulate the FCR FIFO control register, which FreeBSD uses to flush the FIFO. 
added code to check if flushing the FIFO via FCR succeeded and if not switch to the slower approach of reading bytes and discarding them. Why do we need to flush the FIFO? When the UR is first attached, we write data into it to see how large the buffers are and then throw away the dummy data. Firecracker uses vert.io to present virtual devices to guest operating systems. No problem, FreeBSD has vert.io support, except FreeBSD discovers vert.io devices via ACPI, which doesn't exist on Firecracker. Instead, Firecracker exposes device parameters, memory mapped IO addresses and interrupt number via the kernel command line. It took quite a bit of plumbing to handle, not least of which because FreeBSD interprets the kernel command line as, as environment variables, and the vert.io uh, MIMO specification calls for devices to be exposed as a series of uh, vert.io underscore MIMO dot device equals arguments, i.e. they have the same variable name for each of them. The FreeBSD kernel now handle, handles duplicate environment variables by appending suffixes, so they end up with vert.io underscore MIMO dot device um, vert.mimo.device underscore one, etc. And the vert.io driver looks for environment variables to create device instances. Most vert.io hosts handle disk IO consisting of multiple segments of data. QEMU, for example, handles 128 segments. Firecracker is more minimalistic. It rejects IO with more than one segment. This causes a problem for FreeBSD with unaligned IOs from userland, since a buffer which is contiguous in virtual address space might span non-contiguous pages in physical address space. I modified a FreeBSD's uh, vert.io block device driver to make use of the bus DMA system, which bounces, copies, data as needed to comply with alignment and other requirements. Now when vert.io block device uh, only supports single segment IO, we get unaligned request, we bounce the data. Now that FreeBSD supported Firecracker, there was one more thing to do, make Firecracker support FreeBSD. I mentioned earlier that I mistakenly thought that Firecracker supported PVH booting. As it turned out, uh, Alejandro Jimenez contributed patches two years ago, but they were never merged. Some of, his, some of his code ended up in the Linux loader project, which Firecracker uses, but I spent a few weeks digging through his, through his thousands lines of changes to figure out what went into Linux loader and which still applied cleanly to Firecracker, and which I had to rewrite from scratch, a task made more difficult by the fact that Firecracker is written in Rust and I'd never written Rust before. Nevertheless, I was eventually successful and opened a PR with updated patches, which I hope to see merged into mainline Firecracker in the upcoming weeks. How to try FreeBSD Firecracker? To try FreeBSD on Firecracker, you need to build a FreeBSD AMD64 Firecracker kernel and build Firecracker with Collins patches, and he explains how. Um, you probably also want to build a disk image so FreeBSD has something to boot from. Place vfs.mount.root from equals ufs um, vtbd0 in to Firecracker's boot args to tell FreeBSD to use the disk you attach as the root disk. If there's significant community interest and experiment with FreeBSD Firecracker, I'll provide a FreeBSD FreeBSD, a pre-built FreeBSD kernel, uh, root disk, and Firecracker binary so people can skip the process of building these themselves. Thanks, thanks, Colin. This is an excellent. Uh, right up of what was some really cool work to see. Yep, very nice. Okay, in our news roundup, we have found an article how much faster is making a Tara archive without GSIP. So this basically applies to pretty much any Unix that's using those. And the article author also begins with everybody on Linux on BSD seems to use a program called GSIP, frequently in conjunction with another program called TAR. And TAR named from tape archive, so T from tape and AR, first two letters from archive, make up the 
the tar is a program which copies files and folders or directories to a format originally designed archiving on magnetic tape. But tar archive, move this up one more time. But tar archives also can be saved to many other file systems besides tape. Tar archives can be saved to normal hard drives, solid state drives, NVMe drives, and more. So when making those archives, people frequently want to minimize the archive size. Maybe less these days because disks are so big, but we also need to transfer them sometimes. So that's where GSIP comes into play. GSIP reduces the size of the archives, so they take up less storage space. Later, the GSIP tar archive can be unzipped, and unzipping restores the tar archives to their original size, while unzipping the tar program can be used again to extract or untar the archive. Extraction hopefully restores the archive original files exactly as they had been when the archive was created. And they all many they also detail that many people frequently use tar and GSIP for short-term backup. Uh, for example, on servers and before compiling, they use tar to make a short-term backup on how things were before the compile and install. So they list also three good reasons to compile in the first place um, that we don't have to go too deep into. Um, but here they go into how much faster and bigger are plain tar archives made without GSIP. They wondered how the overall time required to make their pre-compiled archive uh, would change if they did not use GSIP. Uh, they also wanted how much bigger the archive would be. Below are shown the data and the analysis of the surprisingly large creation time difference they found. Uh, the archive size difference is also a lot, but nowhere near as much as the creation time difference. So they ran the pre-compilation archive twice, and once with GSIP and once without GSIP, and made uh, line number transcripts of both tests. So my question there would be is uh, that with buffering or with caching or without, because when you do it again, the operating system may have already cached some of those um, IOs or some of those disk files. So maybe that uh, skews up uh, or screws up the results there, but let's keep it as it is. So here they found that it takes 28 minutes of real time. Uh, zipping up a local revert ggset to uh, local. And then without gzip, it just takes 1 minute 14 seconds. That's, wow, not too, uh, that's a big, quite a big difference. Uh, but they linked to a stack overflow post explaining the difference between the real user and sys times reported by time command. And the real time is the war clock times. So the real time shows how long our command took to finish. gzip took 22 times longer. And they try to find out why. And uh, compare the compression sizes, uh, which was 55% of the overall uh, file, a lot of compression there. And uh, so they conclude here that there's one disk space available on their servers. So having an archive that is twice as big but creates 22 times faster might be the best choice. Going forward, before compiling, they will skip doing any compression at all when backing up using local to revert uh, or to enable the revert. Now it, they won't have to wait half an hour anymore. So my guess would be they could also try different uh, compression algorithms, see whether that's uh, making also a difference, or running when they actually have to do a revert of a local compile, they could probably try ZFS, creating a data set and then reverting that with a snapshot uh, each time they need to. But definitely a good uh, analysis or looking into why that is and uh, the added uh, overhead in time needed. I'm, I'm gonna guess that the website lowendbox.com does not have um, a lot of gzip throughput in the processors they're using. 
and so this might be acceleratable. Um, other compressors might also go faster, but yeah, obviously compressing is more work than not compressing, but yeah. the, the amount of trade-off does matter, and 28 times longer is quite a lot longer, but you might do better with Z standard rather than uh, GZIP. You might do better with XZ. If you have a lot of cores, then a compressor that can scale across processors is going to go faster too. So it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. You will definitely see a difference there. Um, okay. Next up, we have uh, a post from dbiservices.com. Uh, this is written by Daniel Westerman, and it is about Postgres from packages on OpenBSD. Almost all of our customers run Postgres on one of the distributions of Linux, either installed from packages or from source. But there is not only Linux, there are various flavors of BSD and you can run Postgres on. So if you want to have something more Unix-like, OpenBSD can be an option. This flavor of BSD is fully open source, like FreeBSD or NetBSD. And the project's focus remains on security, correctness, and cryptography. In fact, OpenSSH comes from the OpenBSD project. So why not use it for running Postgres? I'll not describe the installation of OpenBSD as it is really simple text-based process. You can mainly go with the default options and after a few minutes, the OS is up and running. I've done it using KVM. And if you also do it virtualized, make sure that you enable the OpenSSH daemon during installation so you can connect remotely. Working in the KVM console is not much fun. As always on a fresh installation, one of the first steps you want to do is uh, do updates. And this is done with OpenBSD on syspatch. Here I've done it twice because the first execution updated syspatch itself and the second one applied the patches. I'll skip the reboot mentioned at the end of the output as it's not important for the scope of this post. Uh, then we can check if OpenBSD comes with a pre-packaged version of uh, Postgres and by default packages are porched or fetched from um, the cdn.openbsd.org. Um, searching for Postgres packages can be done with the package info command, uh, package info PostgresQL, but capitals and without. Um, a more convenient way to search for packages is to use package locate. This is not installed by default, but if you do package add package locate db, uh, once it is there, you get impressive number of results, um, 7,000 packages um, matching for Postgres. Seems like quite a lot. Um, stripping that down a bit gives a good overview of what is available. Um, yep. And they give a big list. And now you'll see uh, all the usual sucks all the usual suspects like the server and contra packages, but also Cetus and Timescale, many of the packages you might want to install. PostgreSQL, Postgres version seems to be 14.2, which is not the latest, but there is nothing below Postgres 14, which is good as this is the current major, major version today. Um, you can install Postgres by doing package add Postgres, PostgreSQL server 14.2p1. Uh, and this will give you most of the client packages, which makes sense as we want to actually use the database. The readme, which is mentioned at the end of the install process, uh, contains all the instructions to get started with Postgres and OpenBSD. There's even a tuning section inside and also a procedure on how to upgrade to a new major version. For getting Postgres up and running, this procedure, notice the underscore at the beginning of the username, uh, create a user, make a directory, run init DB. And so in conclusion, uh, getting started with Postgres on OpenBSD is quite easy. The minor version is not the latest one, and I don't know how fast packages uh, are updated usually. Given that the current minor version for 14 is 14.5, uh, it seems that updates are not frequent enough. If you want to avoid that, then you need to go uh, for the installation from source, which is the topic of the next post. Okay. 
Dan Angel of uh, blogging fame and other good things he's doing uh, has another article written and we found that interesting to include here. Upgrading an NVMe Z pool from 222 gigs to one terabyte drive. And uh, always meticulously documenting all the things he does with outputs and screenshots or uh, even uh, photographs from all the things he does from uh, drives he bought or from inside the, the, you know, the server. Uh, but let's get to it. The Freshports dev-tested stage of websites are hosted on a server in my basement. Each instance consists of two jails, one an ingress node for pulling in new commits and other data into the database, a second a web server node for displaying the web pages. And he bought the new drives here. And it's nice to see that um, on the it's, it's a Samsung 980 Pro. And on the, the packaging, it says, boost your gaming storage. And I think Dan will not use it for that particular purpose. So other uses for that storage are perfectly fine too. So uh, those arrived and he took them out of the package, of course, and has provided pictures. So that's definitely a good way of, uh, you know, following along. And for people who have bought similar drives, they could uh, basically do it uh, using just that introduction. And also then he looks at his set pool, what kind of data sets there are, and how to upgrade that and he also provides all the commands he's um, entering as well as the output of those uh, smart ctl is also displayed so you can see what kind of you know, specs those new drives have and then they or he does go about how to partition the new drive as well as including it into the z pool uh figuring it ah auto expand is an option here and the zfs property that you may want to consider that and that pool detected those and figured oh one of my drives need uh, resilvering and of course uh, to get the new data on the new drives so that all have the same state here this is a mirror uh, and then over lunch he thinks huh which drive to pull he has to pull nvd1 from the nvd pool uh, which one is that based on the d message shown earlier he knows that it's the bpxp drive and not the WDC drive, and he didn't have a brand model name to distinguish them, but he'd hoped the serial numbers were visible and he could provide a PCI conf output to compare and other things. So, all this is quite good for people who are in a similar situation, and Dan has good uh, ways of finding uh, not only problems, but also saying, okay, here's my current state. I don't know any further, but please, someone more knowledgeable, look at my blog post and figuring out to help. What do I need to do next? But in this case, it all uh, worked well. And now the drives are taken online and expanding the drive to all available space, done. And now he has more disk space available. Okay, and last up, we have a public service announcement, I guess, from unixchic.com. Uh, and they write, don't use Reddit for Linux or BSD related questions. And it starts with a highlighted warning. If you're looking for answers related to BS, to Linux or BSD or anything for that matter, Reddit is often not the right place to search for them. If you want to get valuable information, why would you try to locate it in a place that is mainly occupied by immature, hostage, hostile, selfish people? This is not unique to Reddit. Use not add this, um, but it generally relates to many social places on the internet, specifically those with points-based voting systems. By the very nature by which the points-based places work, they not only attract but often nurture 
the most horrible, hollow and miserable people. Reddit and other places like it are often toxic and super foolish. Exceptions do exist, and occasionally you will find good channels and helpful information. But in many cases, it's just a complete waste of time. So many people spend their time with empty, personal, emotional, and myth-based discussions and statements. To most people, social acceptance is one of the most important driving forces of their lives. As such, social media discussion sites are mainly dominated by people who follow hype and trends. They cannot and do not think independently, and they are afraid of going against the current. If you use your brain and don't follow the hive mind, you will definitely not be liked. So, so where should you go instead? Uh, read documentation, study blog posts, mainly those without ads. Most ad-based blogs are useless because these people just write in order to get money. Join mailing lists, but be on your guard for toxic environments too, because some mailing lists are bad. Look through archives first and you'll quickly reveal how people behave. As an example, if you're interested in OpenBSD, one of the best places to get professional help is on the MISC mailing list for OpenBSD. Even the developers answer questions and help out. However, a couple of people on the list are full-time bullies. They do nothing but wait for someone to ask the wrong question. And as soon as that happens, they are all over the person as a flock of hyenas attacking a lone prey. They are easily recognized by their hostility and their constant sucking up to developers by exaggerated praise. Write email to authors of relevant blog posts. Often bloggers are happy to help someone with a shared interest. Don't be offended if you don't get an answer. Time is precious for all. Find user groups and meet people in real life. This is perhaps the most important. In real life, most people behave differently because they can't hide. Last but not least, don't waste your time feeling depressed if you've been the target of a toxic group. Surely if a drunk person on the street shouts at you yelling, you're a fool, stupid or wrong or something, you'd hardly know it as well because they're drunk. He doesn't know what he's saying. Why would you pay attention to the bigger fool on social media? That's actually quite a nice sentiment. Um, as someone, it sums up uh, a yeah. lot of the internet going on these days. As, as someone who has maintained a blog for a long time, um, every time someone has emailed me about a blog post, they've always been very polite and they've said, you must get tons of emails, which I always find very flattering because I've had maybe 10 emails in the 15 plus years of having a blog. Uh, so I'm always very happy to get them. And I've managed to respond to like three of these because I guess Mark does a really important email to respond to and then I never respond to it. I'm like, somebody read my blog, it's so cool. And then I just don't respond. Um, if you want to ask me questions, though, you can email uh, bsdnow.tv, uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv. Um, that's how you can ask me questions. Yeah, the feedback that we get <laughs> with this episode, not only this one, but other ones, that's typically good and thoughtful and nice with people you know praising what we're doing and so there's not just only uh, bad people out there and we don't filter too much here so we really get these kinds of nice feedback and questions BSD now is sponsored by tarsnap everyone needs backups and tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated in them so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts those with your local private key, which never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone would have been able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they cannot access it because it's still encrypted. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, 
allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find some errors in the code. And with clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Bringing us right into the feedback and questions section, of course. Uh, Hinnerk has a VNet jails question. And that goes, hello, Benedict, Alan, Tom, and JT. Thank you for the show and all the great information. You're welcome. I'm writing with uh, to you with a question that seems like it should concern more people, but I wasn't able to find a good answer. I have some root servers in a data center and run FreeBSD on them. Actually, it's HardBSD, but I guess it doesn't matter. I have a bunch of jails on each of them and also want to run some Beehive VMs. If I try to use VNet jails or Beehive VMs by default, a bridge device is created. This leads to the data center operator seeing MAC addresses from the VNet jails or the VMs on my switch port and warning me to cease that behavior or otherwise be shut down. Is there a way to use bridges or keep the internal MAC addresses from leaking or a default way to connect VNet jails or Beehive VMs without a bridge and just route the traffic via the main physical interfaces? Thank you for the great work. Yeah, of course. Of course, um, but you're not you're not using VNet jails or Beehive virtual machines. You're using a framework that's doing something for you. Um, so you might be running. Oh, I don't know what any of them are called. Um, CBSD or some of the wrappers around jails and, and Beehive. Um, lots of these will take a, a candidate interface and put it in a bridge, and then when they add jails or virtual machines, the ton interface for the, uh, the tap interface for the virtual machine or an e-pair for the jail will get added to the bridge and that traffic will be on the same bridge as your public interface. And so then it will get rooted. Um, I think Bastille does this differently where they NAT between a bridge and an external interface. Um, and I actually have a blog post. Yeah, look at that. It's like a full circle now. I have a blog post. <laughs> there we go. Um, oh, and it cites Alan. Um, I, I have a blog post I wrote about using a internal system bridge um, for hosting jails and virtual machines, um, which then connects out via IPFW to a, a public interface. And I see my ASCII art is a bit squiff, but I think you can still understand it. Uh, it will hopefully be in the show notes. Um, it's quite easy to set up. It's, you know, a couple of pieces, but you don't really need any static config. This might be really hard to integrate if you're using a system for managing your jails. But I don't normally do that because uh, there's something wrong with me, and I don't like simplicity like that. Uh, I like writing shell scripts. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it's probably like so. Bridge isn't inherently a part of this. It's the fact that you have a public um, member of the bridge on the physical interface, and that's why the traffic is leaking through. If you have the, the host do packet forwarding, then no one will be able to tell. Now, if you want the packets to actually get back to where they came from, you'll need a NAT. But NAT's fine. You just add more NATs. You can fit a lot of NATs in the internet. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, behind uh, those are much more behind seven NATs. <laughs> There's that. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can over NAT. <laughs> over NAT. Uh, okay. Next up, we have uh, feedback from Hugo, uh, and Hugo writes about the Apple M2. Congrats for the show. Thanks, Hugo. I just listened to the last one and it inspired me for running OpenBSD in the Apple M2 with QEMU. You can check it out here and they link to a gist and it'll be on our show notes. So you too can be linked to a gist. Uh, and it looks pretty straightforward. Um, 
and there are some comments so there's probably some updates too so it looks really good thanks hugo and uh kevin is last this week with an emacs backspace question or feedback uh goes like the following hi Benny is the now crew really enjoy the show sorry for the double post in september repeating my question from august nah don't worry about it it's worth waiting for your response and could help out another listener too this time i'll wait eight weeks before i assume my first message was missed um yeah we try to uh you know get as soon as possible uh, the feedback queue empty um but sometimes yeah we we have too much and people have to wait a little longer okay stdy-a showed erase already set to uh, control question mark but erase 2 was set to control h the following command successfully set erase 2 to control question mark both on the command line and when added through cshrc so stdy erase 2 a single quote uh, control question mark single quote but that made no difference for using backspace in mg or emacs it simply passed control h to the application control backspace does properly delete the character to the left of the cursor in the normal backspace hashes after applying the change logging out of all tmux and ssh sessions and even rebooting made no difference huh this happened on my thinkpad t440 laptop two years ago when i tried previously on it and currently happened in the direct consoles of VirtualBox, DigitalOcean, and Vulture. Everywhere I've run FreeBSD, over SSH doesn't have this problem. What further info would I need to file a bug report? Um, I, I think, Kevin, that you're one of the most uh, patient people I have ever heard of, and you should just learn Vim, and then you wouldn't have this problem anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you might want to find a medium where you can get a faster response time than uh, every eight weeks for asking this question because the problem you have is neither Benedict or I use Emacs because um, we like memory. Uh, you remember, you're right there. <laughs> and and uh, FreeBSD forums would be. Yeah, like, and my suggestions should have fixed this. Like it would have fixed it for Vim. Um, you could try changing your terminal type, uh, but I really think you should ask in a forum or on a mailing list. I don't think this is a bug. I think this is a configuration issue for MG and Emacs rather than an actual bug because other people would be hating this and complaining. They definitely would be complaining. <laughs> it could also be that it's a CSH uh, that's wrong somehow, but trying a different shell could probably confirm or uh, I'm, yeah, I'm almost tempted to install MG, but I would type MG and then I wouldn't know what to do and how to leave, like when I get dropped into nano. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry we can't be more helpful, but I think you need to find a, a faster medium in which to ask for help. Yeah, this is a general Unix problem, not just FreeBSD related, I think, if, if it's a configuration issue at all. So check out the FreeBSD forums as a first start. They are quite good at replying and maybe searching that first. Maybe someone else has asked this before and you can just look at the answers. Or if not, then start a new uh, post there. And I think you get help. Cool, and let us know what the solution was, then uh, we can also learn from it and people who listen to this show uh, have a nice follow-up of what went with it. Okay, uh, I think that is all for this week. Anything left from you? No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, all right, I'm also good. So we'll be happy to have you again. And uh, let us know anything in between to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And as always, we'll be back with another episode next week.